Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This week is the third of our summer specials with a trilogy of powerhouse women, articles chosen and recorded by Belle Tyndall. Belle is the journalist for the Seen and Unseen website and co-host of the Reenchanting podcast, also produced by the Centre for Cultural Witness for Seen and Unseen. communities living within Kenya's vast, desolate and beautiful arid and semi-arid lands have suffered over the past two years from a drought that has hit the entire region. Rainfall during the so-called rainy seasons has been in decline and with more than 80% of Kenyans reliant on agriculture to survive, livelihoods and food security are at risk. Livestock numbers have depleted and the cattle that are still alive are underfed and therefore unproductive. Women and girls, their skin shining with perspiration as they carry yellow jerry cans strapped to their heads, trek for up to tens of kilometres a day. They are in search of life-giving water for their livestock and families, returning home each day with shoes and feet scuffed, sun-scorched and covered in red dust. This is not an image from decades ago, before we started working towards global sustainable development goals and COP targets. No, this is happening right now in our world. Speaking to a Maasai woman living in a remote part of rural Kenya on a recent work assignment, I asked her about the impact the drought was having on her community, who mainly rely on nomadic cattle herding to live. She explained that the men were leaving for months on end in search of pasture for their cattle. They are chasing the rains and leaving women to run the households and try and make ends meet, looking after children and extended family. But the women at home lack authority to make any decisions. About the land, about supplementing income, about other employment, about crops or food choices – They are disempowered by the social and cultural norms within this strict patriarchal Maasai society and unable to stem the cascading flow of worsening poverty. According to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organisation, people in poverty are more susceptible to climate change than wealthier people. Their livelihoods and assets are more exposed and they are more vulnerable to natural disasters that bring disease, crop failure, spikes in food prices and death. The World Bank estimates that without immediate action, climate change could push 120 million more people into poverty by 2030. And of those, the threat of climate change on agriculture in Africa could push 30 million people into extreme poverty. Gender inequalities present in many countries and societies exacerbate this already existing vulnerability of the poor to climate change. And women and girls are disproportionately affected by climate change. For example, an increase in child marriage has been observed in communities as a means of coping financially when a disaster occurs, such as drought or a flood. Families raise much needed additional funds through dowries. Extreme weather events also increase the work burden of women and girls and their ability to perform their everyday tasks. They must walk further to collect firewood and water due to dwindling resources. 
women often lack land rights and are passed down through generations along patrinial lines, as is the case in Kenya. Women's access to climate emergency funding in areas where such funding is available is therefore limited as they don't possess the collateral in the form of land rights and ownership. In short, women and girls fear significantly worse than men and boys when it comes to the impacts of poverty and climate change on well-being. So what does Jesus think about gender inequality? Jesus treated all people with equal love and respect. The Gospel writer, Luke, records that he talked with respect about the Samaritans who were seen by the Jews as racial inferiors. He reached out to prostitutes and to lepers, both of whom were social outcasts. He, without doubt, had a special sensitivity to those on the margins and towards those who are poor. And Jesus goes one step further. He also demonstrates a radical approach to gender equality in the Bible. For example, John, the writer of another gospel, describes his encounter with a woman at a well. As Jesus passes through a town on his journey through Samaria, he is tired and stops to sit by a well. When a Samaritan woman approaches to draw water, he asks her for a drink and begins a conversation that leads to Jesus showing her that he is the Son of God. This speaks about gender equality in several ways. First, Jesus spoke to the woman at a time when it was forbidden for a man to talk to a woman in public, even a wife or a daughter. Jesus was also a rabbi, which would typically create multiple barriers between him and the woman in terms of race, gender and lifestyle. But these things were not barriers for Jesus. He spoke to the woman as a human being. He demonstrated equality. Second, Jesus is vulnerable with her, asking her for a drink because he is thirsty. Here is a man asking a woman for help, openly admitting he needed something from her. And third, Jesus ignores the Talmud, a Jewish commentary on the Pentateuch that taught that it was immoral to teach a woman the law. He discusses theology with her. Jesus did not regard his Jewish racial identity or being male as in any way superior. Jesus clearly demonstrates through his actions in this passage that all who trust in Jesus are equally God's children, valued without differentiation or discrimination based on race or gender. As Jesus shows in this passage in John's Gospel, he does not consider women feebler, less capable or less intelligent than men. Throughout the Bible, he continually recognises their virtue. In parallel, much evidence shows that greater gender parity in the world today would make it a richer and more sustainable place for human beings, biodiversity and the environment. Improved nutrition, food security, livelihoods and health come from greater access, benefit sharing mechanisms and employment opportunities for women. For example, when women have greater control over household resources, spending patterns shift towards catering more for families' food and education. According to the OECD in Kenya and Malawi, levels of malnutrition are found to be lower among children in female-headed households. 
an NGO project that worked with women in agriculture across six countries, found that when women were given ownership of land and when women's participation was improved in farmers' collectives, income from agriculture increased between 40 and 165%. If vulnerabilities caused by poverty are reduced by supporting and recognising women as equal to men, this translates into households and communities that are less vulnerable and more resilient to the effects of climate change. It is all connected. Humanity cannot chase the rains forever. In our race to find more stability and sustainability in this changing world, perhaps it's time to take Jesus' lead and really recognise and value women equally to men, both as people and for the contribution they can make to lives, livelihoods and our world. Her Experience by Jane Williams. Julian of Norwich doesn't seem to tick many boxes as an influencer, but her, yes, her, quietly revolutionary theology has had an impact that would probably startle her considerably. For example, T.S. Lewis quotes her in Little Gidding as he explores the delicate and unexpected grounds of hope. Julian's striking mixture of confidence and hiddenness lend themselves well to Eliot's meditative poem. It's unusual to claim authority for someone whose name we don't even know. She is almost certainly named after the Church of St Julian in Norwich, in which she spent years, walled up so that she could see into church and talk to people through a little window, but never leave. But her anonymity is part of what draws us to her now, she opens a window into a world where women were largely unheard and uncelebrated. We hear so few women's voices from the 14th and 15th centuries, or indeed for several centuries before and after. Julian tells us that she was uneducated, by which she probably meant that she didn't read or write Latin, which was the cultured language of the day. Instead, she wrote what is probably the first book by a woman in English. Her modesty about her educational background also gives her the freedom to write about God without having to worry about being theologically correct. She describes a series of visions that she received from God. She makes no claim for the doctrinal purity of what she understood, so she never got into trouble, despite the fact that she describes God's attitude to us in ways that would not have met the approval by the church authorities of her day. From what God showed here in his visions, although human sin and failure is real, it is not final. And God does not judge us for it, because it is already overcome through Jesus' identification with us. She writes, Sin is necessary, but all shall be well, and in all things shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. This is not blind optimism but based on her experience of the character of God that she sees in Jesus. As far as Julian can see, Jesus doesn't blame us for our sin. She isn't necessarily assuming that everyone will be saved, but she is sure that God doesn't seek to judge us. She lived through the Black Death. Like so many of us now, she must have suffered bereavement. Indeed, the visions she describes were shown to her while she lay on what everyone assumed was her own deathbed. 
Some experts think she may have been widowed and lost children because of the way in which she writes about Jesus' maternal qualities. Her message of the invincible, trustworthy love of God is even more challenging against the background of fear, loss and death. And it springs from her encounter with the crucified Jesus. She tells us as she lay dying, a priest held a crucifix before her eyes and she saw the figure of the cross as real and in agony. But she also saw that Jesus hangs on the cross out of his own free will so that no one can doubt the love of God. This act of suffering identification with us is the source of hope, Julian says, both because Jesus' suffering and his victory over death are real. Julian also has a lot to teach us about what to do with our experience of God. On first reading, it seems that she is wholly experiential in her approach, but then we discover that she spent the rest of her life pondering what she had experienced, interrogating it for meaning, going back to God to ask for further clarification. The longer version of her manuscript was probably written 20 years after she first received the visions. But she trusted her experience. She also thought she needed to work at it and be patient with it and dig more deeply into what it meant. What I really want to do now is quote all of my favourite bits of her book, The Revelations of Divine Love. But that would be a spoiler. Read her for yourself, but don't be lulled by her gentle narrative voice into missing her theological, daily and passion. Once upon a time, in a faraway corner of the world, there was a little republic. It was mountainous and beautiful. Here was the ancient Amaras Monastery, where the creator of the Armenian alphabet founded the first ever school that used his script. Many other Armenian Christian monasteries and churches from the 4th, 8th, 13th and other centuries are located in this area. This is a magical place, the Republic of Artsakh. Although you may have heard it called Karabakh, and depending on who you ask, that means black garden or a beautiful garden. Nagorno-Karabakh is a disputed territory between Armenia and Azerbaijan, but for me, it is home. The conflict over Karabakh dates back to the early days of the Soviet Union, when the boundaries of a new empire were being drawn. It was Joseph Stalin's idea to award the territory, inhabited by Armenians for centuries, to Soviet Azerbaijan, which produced 60% of the oil of the USSR. But Karabakh would remain semi-autonomous and Armenians actually remained a firm majority there, even though ethnic crimes increased over the next decades. In February 1988, mobs of Azerbaijanis in the seaside town of Sumgate began to attack and kill Armenians in the town. This is when Armenians in Karabakh and Armenia rose to protest. And in 1991, as the Soviet Union was collapsing, the people of Karabakh voted to regain independence, just like Armenia, Azerbaijan and other Soviet countries. Of course, Azerbaijan didn't like that. And that is how the first war started. 
In the early 1990s, Armenians from all over the world came to Artsakh to fight in an intense ground war. When a ceasefire was brokered in 1994, Armenians were in control of Artsakh and several other surrounding regions. So the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe's Minsk Group, co-chaired by Russia, France and the United States, was charged with organising the peace process. But negotiations failed and Artsakh was never recognised. Azerbaijan continued to dream of revenge. The area is not so rich in natural resources, but it feels like heaven on earth. Clean mountain air, green and dense forests, pristine water straight from the mountains, and kind, smiling people. Here, for example, while on public transport, you would never be afraid that someone might steal something from your bag. Such things simply do not happen in Artsakh. Children can play quietly for hours in the yard and parents wouldn't even think that someone could harm them. While walking in the capital city, it's impossible to see any garbage on the street. People keep the environment very clean. People don't usually take their parents to the care home, but take care of them themselves and enjoy the presence of their parents until their last days. Everyone cares about each other and just wants to live peacefully in their homes. I was born here and grew up in such an environment. On September the 27th, 2020, we woke up in the morning to the sounds of an explosion. At first, I thought it was a nightmare. But then when I saw my little sister trembling with fear, I realised that it was real and that the war had begun. Azerbaijan attacked Artsakh and used various prohibited weapons targeting ordinary people like me. My family and everyone else went down to the basements, the first floors of our houses, wherever we could hide. However, we were aware that we would not be saved in case of a direct hit. I was working as a journalist in the Armenian media outlet Civilnet at the time and could not idly sit by. My cameraman and I went out into the streets together to see what evidence we could film. I started my work as a journalist only two months before the war and it would be a lie to say that I was the most experienced one. However, at that moment there was no more time. It was necessary to get together and do what you can. Our colleagues from Yerevan, the capital of Armenia, joined us and together we began to tell stories about the war. I turned from a novice to a journalist into a war correspondent. All my family were in the war. My mother worked in the hospital and I saw her only several times during those 44 days. My brother was called to the front line on the first day and was in the war until the end. My father, a veteran and a disabled person from the first war, helped transport military equipment. For us, it wasn't like going to war. For us, it was protecting our home. I started to write posts, diaries, every day and post them online. Here is a paragraph from the first day. I couldn't just sit and do nothing. No matter how much my parents insisted, I decided to go out into the city and work. I am not a war journalist, of course, but this is not simply a job. These events are happening in my Artsakh. Today, for the first time, I witnessed the traces of explosions, scattered pieces of rockets, wounded people and a drone flying and exploding in the air. I think that's enough for today. 
The diaries became quite popular, especially after some days when my cameraman was also called to the front line. I couldn't make video reports of myself, and then I started to write and photograph more. I understood that I don't want to write about politics, but rather about human beings who suffer, who hope, who smile, who cry, who lose and who love. Today, my friend Mike from the USA, also a reporter, asked the five-year-old boy Marat what he would do if he had a lot of money. We met the family of Marat in a basement of an old school. He replied, I would buy a watch and sunglasses. Mike took his glasses out of his bag and gave them to Marat as a gift. Try them on. And Marat, not knowing how to put them on, wore them backwards. We all laughed and helped him to do it properly. They were too big for him, but he was incredibly happy. We looked at the boy and said, Marat, you have to be careful. They cost a fortune. And we all had a good laugh. Some days, though, it was very difficult to stay resilient. On day 15, October the 11th, 2020, I wrote this. It already feels like Groundhog Day. Stepana Kit isn't being bombed right now. At least that's how it seems. I'm still in the basement. The drones flew and fell, but I did not hear talk of victims. The weather was great today, but it was too scary to go outside. Sometimes it feels like I will never be able to go out into the streets. I woke up at midnight and I couldn't sleep for the rest of the night because of yesterday's heavy bombing. We already can distinguish the sounds. When it's a smidge, when it's a drone, when it's cluster bombs, and when it's us hitting their drone... It is sad that we can distinguish these sounds, but what can we do? This is our reality today. During the war, I and my diaries experienced a lot. I heard that the hospital where my mother works was bombed. I headed there and found her, thankful to God, safe and sound. I saw a man repairing his garage as cluster bombs were falling, a woman making tea between an intermission of the bombs, the targeting against the civilian population, a human rights defender who could not see asking the world not to be blind, soldiers being baptised in the middle of the war, a man dying in a hospital, houses without faces, closets abandoned, toys left behind, mothers who lost the meaning of their lives when they lost their sons. The war was over, with our loss. We didn't win, although we thought we would. Azerbaijan conquered nearly 70% of Artsakh. Thousands of people lost their lives, thousands more lost their homes and became displaced people. The war continued for 44 days, and 150,000 Armenians of Artsakh, and millions of Armenians in Armenia and diaspora, will never forget those bloody days. Writing the diaries for me was a way to express myself, as sometimes it seemed that I might go insane. I also felt that by doing that I could be useful to others, and that is a very important factor for me. I, like everyone else, just wanted to be useful. Mostly, the women and children left for Armenia, to a safer place than Artsakh. They went there to wait until the war was over, and later they came back home. I felt that people who were outside couldn't really know what was happening here, and that is why I wanted to give them information firsthand. During the war, I met many wonderful people, and I also met a director, Garin Hovanissian, 
who came to Artsakh from Armenia to film the war and film my diaries. After the war, he supported me in publishing the diaries of the book, which is now called 44 Days Diaries of an Invisible War. Together we made a documentary on the war called Invisible Republic, which is now, after taking part in numerous film festivals, available for watching. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from seen and unseen aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.